This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am so excited for today's guest. We've got Michael Geller. Sir Michael Geller. No, not, not well, maybe. I don't know. Is he not? If he hasn't been, he may be soon. I don't he, know. I feel like uh, Michael Geller's got uh, got a, a lot of accolades. Yeah. And he wears a lot of hats. He's he's Vancouver's renaissance man. He's, you know, the, the saying is jack of all trade, master of none. He's master of all trades. Master of master. Jack of none. <laughs> He flipped it on its head. He flipped That's it on how good head. he is. That's how he, good he is. He's, he's phenomenal. I mean, so he's he's uh, architect by trade. Yes, columnist for the Vancouver Courier. Uh, very avid on on Twitter, sure. I should say. But and the reason I bring that up is not because it's such an accomplishment, but he has ideas all the time. Very interesting ideas he does. on all things related to kind of uh, culture and society in Vancouver. He's he's the true Renaissance man. He's a developer. Yes. Uh, he used to work for CMHC. He's basically been in the, the trenches building Vancouver up since the Southeast False Creek days. Teaches uh, at SFU. Teaches at SFU. I mean, truly a renaissance man. Part of one of the most prestigious book clubs, which was a secret. He told us on the way out, and I hope we're not outing. Uh, we won't mention any anybody's names, but this book club is like a true skull and bones. I feel like he, scenario. so he brought it up only to say, hey, look, guys, you know, Women all over Vancouver have book clubs. Men, not so much. Right. You should consider uh, forming one. We're having a lot of fun at our book club. Yeah. 
And uh, and it was like the names on the list of who he meets up to talk about uh, S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders with. Like, it's, I'm sure they're not. It's listen though. There's I, no S.E. Hinton th- at these at these clubs. Not, I th- I think I said to him like that's like all all of these people in one room is like Stan Gold. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, but all these people in one room. It's like when the when a corporation flies all their head honchos on a plane. It's like a risk because there's so much brain power. So in So much room. talent in that room. Yeah, for exactly. Sure. They got to do it over Skype or yeah, something. Yeah. But uh, less of a risk if our uh, laser tech group goes down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but speaking of book clubs, yeah, there is another book club I know of, and it's at Oakland Realty. These are the types of things Oakland does. Sure, uh, our real estate firm. Fantastic yeah. bunch of people over there. Yeah. We have a tip by Oakwin this week. Adam, you're going to read the tip. And the tip this week, Matt, is make sure that you meet the correct deadlines, especially on the contract when you're dealing with deposits. And I just want to talk a little bit about this. So like when you're getting ready to remove conditions, first of all, you have to know when that deposit is due. And and often it's within 24 hours, but sometimes it's upon subject removal. And I For find sure. that uh, you hear horror stories all the time about people getting caught up. Well, the potential is that you're in breach of contract if you don't have the right payee, the right um, form of payment the amount, and for sure the timeline, right? If you miss the deposit due date, you're in uh, breach. It, it, it can be a complication. So make sure that you understand when the deposit is due before you remove conditions. And yeah, it's just good practice. Brought to you by Oakland Realty. We also got a tip. We're doing a tip this week. This week, our tip is... It pr- it's pretty vague this week. It is pretty vague, but I think if you follow this, it's going to work out for you. It's yeah. hangout in Yale Town Bars. Yeah, that's that sounds like a su- successful trajectory. Um, okay, so you're hanging out in Yale Town Bars. Okay, but why? You, you listen to this. So I have a I have a client. I was with him the other night, um, uh, and and he mentioned a couple weeks back he was in a bar in Yale Town, sitting at the bar with a friend. Okay, they meet a couple next uh, sitting next to him at the bar. A couple from Cincinnati. I like where this is going. He says, yeah, it's a really nice couple. We're talking to them all night. They're talking to them all night. He's like, the guy's pulling out his phone. They're talking about politics. He's showing them photos from, from their recent trip to, to wherever. You know, they're becoming really good friends with these people over the course of the night. And then right near the end of the night, uh, my client looks at him and goes, man, has anyone ever told you you look like Emilio Estevez? And? And was it actually And Emilio? it was Emilio Estevez. At the end of the night, he found out. Yeah. How, but here's a but question. He was, he was blurred, your, blurred vision at that a, point. So at, at that point of the night, though, I'm telling someone if they ask me that, that I'm Amelia <laughs> I've Estevez. actually heard you tell somebody you're Amelia <laughs> yeah. Estevez. <laughs> I'm, I'm a slightly more bloated version. <laughs> he's, he's in town. He's in town. Something to do with the Mighty Ducks yeah. franchise okay. of which I can't imagine. Well, that actually, landed, that but, ties uh, in with our earlier comments about Outsiders because he was uh, he, he was an outsider. Outsiders, the yeah, movie, right? right? He was um, not Dally. He was uh, he was Keith, one he was Keith Tubit Matthews. Matthews <laughs> is who he was. Yeah, he was he was a he was a gun toting that talking. No, you're thinking of Young Guns. No, no, Young Guns. He was Billy the Kid. Right. Yeah. No. In in Outsiders, he was Keith Two Bit. Is that is that yeah. serious? That's I don't serious, even remember yeah. that character. Yeah. But I do. I was he, thinking you might have been talking him about him and Dari. Were sc- Dari were good friends. <laughs> Secret. Uh, do you remember the garbage movie he did with his brother Charlie? Yeah, that was a Repo Man, was it? No, no, no. That was that was a different movie. That was a different Emilio Estevez vehicle. Is that which which was the one? Where well, he was in the Breakfast men. Club. He was in uh, Young Guns. He was Young in, Guns um, Two. 
Young Guns 2, which surprisingly was almost as Holds good up. As, Holds up. as Young Guns 1. I haven't seen it in a while, but uh, there's a, Father's there's, Martin Sheen. But no, it's it's okay. So it's not Repo Man, but Secret. What is uh, what's the garbage garbage movie? Men at Work. No, the correct answer was Mighty Ducks. That was the garbage movie. <laughs> men at Work was go- the garbage men movie. But we're getting off track. But um, before we get to our guests here, Matt, we got to, of course, shout out to Ramy Films, RamyFilms.com. Ramy is, is the guy who's been helping us. He's the guy behind the bento box. Yeah, he's been helping us with all of our videos. We are on YouTube. You can check out our interview today with Michael Geller on YouTube if you want. Everything's over at our YouTube channel, including our live events. And Ramy is doing a beautiful job. Bang up job. Video marketing. Yeah. Live events. He does everything over there. Check it it all. Vancouver Real Estate Podcast on YouTube. But let's cut to our talk with Michael Geller. Flying V Formation. Let's go. Okay, so we're here with Michael Geller, and I'm going to try and get all this correct here, but developer, architect, planner, consultant, and also uh, adjunct professor at SFU, and currently writing a lot for uh, The Courier, Vancouver Sun, and the list goes on. It's nice to be back. Yeah, welcome. And uh, maybe actually, uh, you, if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. You've been on before. You're a fan favorite, but uh, that was some time. That was some time ago. Now, ago. I feel like that was at least a couple of years. I started by studying architecture because I wanted to be a developer. And in those days, you didn't go to school to be a developer. You can now. You know, you can take the urban land program at UBC and, and other similar programs. Um, I then joined CMHC, the Federal Housing Agency, after working in architect's office. Spent 10 years there. Really? Uh, One of my most proud accomplishments was getting the South Shore of False Creek started. I was, everybody in CMHC thought that development would fail. And I was one of the few who hadn't planned on having a long career at CMHC and uh, became the special coordinator, 1975 and watch the first homes, the co-ops, and the nonprofits, and the condos get started. Right. And uh, wow. then was transferred to Toronto to do a similar project in Toronto. Anybody's listening from Toronto, the St. Lawrence Project, and then Harborfront. So uh, I, I spent oh, yeah. 10 great years with CMHC, but uh, about three months before my pension would be locked in, I decided to leave, which was a really <laughs> stupid thing to do, because otherwise I'd be getting a pension now. But <laughs> When you're 30 years old, it's pretty hard to be planning for your pension. Wow. Can you maybe talk, like, what, what was, like, a day in the life at, at CMHC? Were you just, were you, were you always kind of project-focused? Like, were you out actually on site? Or what, what? Um, a number of the projects that I worked on were the seniors' housing. You know, CMHC used to build a lot of public housing seniors' projects. Mm-hmm. But something I'm also quite proud of is I did my thesis on modular housing, and we may have talked about it last time. This notion of the modular homes for the homeless was my thesis. And I pitched it in 2008 during the municipal election. And it took until 2017 for the first units to open up yeah. because uh, it was viewed as an NPA idea rather than a Vision Vancouver idea. But right. while I was at CMHC, I also did build two modular housing seniors projects, one in Chase and one in Karameos. So Wow. But I, uh, I was involved in the waterfront redevelopment in Montreal, St. John, New Brunswick. 
Quebec City. So it was fabulous. It was, you know, I, if there is a message I will share with people, a lot of people say, you know, why would anybody ever want to work for government? I think if you want to be in the development industry successfully, you have to work for government at some point in your life. Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I guess just learning the kind of ins and outs of how dealing with bureaucracy in some respects. The other thing is you get an appreciation for something which I'll call the public purpose, the public interest. And indeed, that's what governments and the planners at City Hall and the federal and provincial officials, they're always looking at things in terms of, is this good for the general public? The politicians, of course, are looking at it in terms of, will this help me get reelected? Right. But the civil servants, I think, genuinely, for the large part, are encouraging things to happen that will benefit society. And to be honest, it's hard for a lot of developers to appreciate that because their motivation is invariably to try and make some money. Right. So balancing the two, but no, I highly recommend working for government. I I had 10 great years and I loved it. Well, I'm kind of struck by uh, two things you said. One is kind of the being involved on the south side of False Creek early on, but but second, you went to architecture school because you want to be a developer. So very early on, you've You've always, it sounds like you've always been interested in, in real estate. Like, why real estate? What, what got you excited about it? I grew up on Bathurst Street in Toronto. And as I walked to the synagogue, I would look at all these apartment buildings going up, and I thought, that's what I wanted to do as a little boy. Um, in Canada, kids had mini bricks. We had something called Baco, which I got from England. So I was at four or five years old making little houses by sticking metal rods in a green base and adding in walls and windows. I'd always wanted to do that. Interesting. <laughs> so, 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 Michael, so how did you go from your, your role at CMHC then to actually developing your own projects privately? I joined a private development company in 1981, and those people who can remember 1981 will know it was two years before 1983. And in 1983, <laughs> the interest rates were around 19%. And our company, it was called Nayrod Developments. It was once one of the most uh, well-known and respected development construction companies. Uh, we built uh, a lot of developments around the city. Arbutus Village uh, was one of our projects along Broadway, all, all over. I was actually looking after Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland, which somebody listening now would say, no wonder they went broke. But we did in 1983, and I got set up in business by Nayrod's receivers. Most people get put out of business by receivers. <laughs> I got set up by receivers. One thing led to another. I became a consultant. And then one day I was a consultant to Dayon, and again, another major development company, uh, advising them on a project. And they said I'd overvalued a piece of land. And I said, you know, if I had the money, I would build it for what I think it's worth. And they said, why don't you get the money? We'll sell it to you. And I went out to CIBC, and I borrowed $45,000, $25,000, because I'd written a, a good-faith check in case they cashed it. And the other 20000 was to buy a used Jag Vandenplau, so I'd look important enough to get the other $13 million. <laughs> That's great. Perception is reality. But a lot of people can develop property if you've got the right idea. You don't need the money. There's other people who have the money if you've got the right idea. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, people like me would partner with someone, and invariably you would get half the proper profits, 
and you'd give away half the profits, but they would put up the money. Right. And I did about five projects that way, and they were all fairly successful. The, and so it sounds like your trajectory then uh, in terms of real estate investor was was less about, say, you know, purchasing investment properties, things like that, and more about investing your knowledge and expertise in, in the development side of things. That's right. I did plan after my first project, I made a million dollars and I was going to buy an apartment building in Oak Bay because I thought that'd be a good place to buy an apartment building. But then I bought a new Jaguar van and <laughs> and I probably uh, slowly watched it all disappear and taxes and things like that. But uh, over the years, I have bought a little bit of property. But uh, and I've I once wrote an article for the Vancouver Real Estate Weekly saying the east side of Vancouver is undervalued. You should buy on the east side. And a number of my friends took that advice. I didn't, but they did. And uh, But no, I think what you do is you start small. I hitchhiked to university one day and a gentleman picked me up and I'll never forget it. He said, I'll take you down the university, but I have to make a few stops. And after a while, I realized he was picking up rent checks. And he said to me, where do you live? And I told him where I lived. He says, do you own it? I said, what do you mean, do I own it? I rent. I mean, why would I own anything? He says, let me tell you, buy something as soon as you can. And if you can't afford it, buy it with somebody else. And don't worry about paying too much, he said, because over the long term, prices always go up. I think that still applies. That still applies. That's that's pretty good advice, I would say, as well. (laughs) Well, Michael, it, it, obviously you've been in, in, uh, involved in real estate for a long time in Vancouver. You've seen various different markets. You mentioned 1983, but you've seen uh, Vancouver go through some ups and downs, uh, some really big swings up and, and some downswings as well. Can you talk a little bit about uh, this last downturn in relation to, to the other swings in the market that you've seen? I have been telling people that for years I was taught that real estate is all about location, location, location. And as a result of the last two years and developing two small projects in uh, West Vancouver, I've concluded it's all about timing, timing, timing. I had a wonderful product, but my timing was off because government programs came in. What goes up does come down. And I think uh, many, myself, and no doubt many people listening to us right now have discovered in the last two years, things do go down. You just have to look at property assessments. We've had two years of dropping assessments. But that doesn't mean they're going to go down for the next 10 years. They may go down for another year. But ultimately, over the long term, prices do go up. Right. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, we're, we're starting off now 2020, we're in January, any thoughts for what the market will do this year? My mother used to have an expression, it all depends on the price of tea in China, which meant <laughs> I have no idea. The irony is to a large degree, I believe the real estate market in Vancouver does depend on the price of tea yeah, in China. Yeah, I was going to say that actually, <laughs> that's where I thought you were going. Or the cost of goods or trade agreements between China, there's no doubt that our market, a lot of the froth was directly attributable to foreign buyers and especially buyers from China. Our market was very much influenced. And I really do believe that to a certain degree, uh, the prices of 
all kinds of accommodation, whether it's a condo in Port Moody, if you can get approval to build a condo in Port Moody, or a rental unit in uh, North Vancouver, or a house on the west side of Vancouver, is very much influenced by whether or not there's a strong foreign buyer's market. Because there's no doubt, and I agree with David Off and others who point out, that we did reach a price level which was generally unaffordable for just hard-working local folk. So it sounds like if you were to to think back about the last kind of two years, then it, foreign buyers taxes, you're attributing a lot of the downturn to to specifically that policy and, and the empty homes tax, others that targeted people that from offshore that uh, that it made it Vancouver less attractive. Yeah. The, in Vancouver, certainly the, there are three, three things that have influenced the market. One was the empty home tax. And while I... I didn't really like the idea of the government interfering with the housing market. I could understand why that would be seen to be a good thing. What did upset me, though, was the fact that it applied to people who owned a second home who were maybe here three months a year. And they applied the tax to them because they didn't know how to distinguish between three months or one month or six months and so forth. The other thing, though, that has had a real bearing, I think, is the new regulations regarding Airbnb. I, I mean, we, again, you know it, I know it. A lot of people were buying condos, keeping them as investments, renting them out as Airbnb. Once the city started to crack down, and other people on Twitter were reporting units that were violating that rule, right. I, think, I actually think that the Airbnb restriction had as much impact as the empty home tax and the so-called speculation tax in terms of bringing some more rental units to the market. And, uh, and to uh, Max Fawcett and others who said, hey, Geller, you said these programs weren't going to work. I, I acknowledge that the combined effect of those three programs, plus the foreign buyer's tax, plus other things, there's, it does appear, according to CMEC statistics, that more rental units did come onto the market in the last year, especially in the downtown peninsula. Mm-hmm. Maybe thinking about um, you know where we're at, and it seems like we've had a, a couple good months here. The last half of 2019 was was. Uh, was better. I, I follow you on Twitter as well, uh, more of an observer than a participant on Twitter. But uh, but I know y- you've talked a little bit about your developments in West Van, and I just saw you just sold one apparently to a developer, and you said it's very satisfying <laughs> yeah. when other people in the development community are 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 buying your product. Can you talk about kind of uh, about that experience of getting getting caught having bad timing uh, in the market because often people say you know it's impossible to time the market uh, but that experience and then kind of how the last couple months have been and what you expect for 2020 yeah. there have been more sales in the last three or four months but I think it may be because a lot of vendors are just becoming more realistic And uh, we did sell, uh, I had partners on one heritage revitalization project. I had a beautiful home. It sat on the market for over a year. But eventually, you just get so fed up that you decide, I just got to sell it. Or your partner says, I got to sell it. I actually was willing to hang on because we pretty much paid off the bank debt. But my partners wanted to sell, and we did. Um, I did just sell. I have a development in West Van. 
again, it's the kind of thing I was encouraged by the municipality to do it. I bought a heritage house. I moved it. I split it into two, a single-level suite, a beautiful restored house, got approval to build two infill units. I thought, how can I go wrong? In Ambleside, where everybody's building 4,000-square-foot houses, I can have much smaller units. Well, it's a strata, and a lot of people in West Van are nervous about buying into a strata. In fact, it's probably a really good idea, right. but it's different. Um, fortunately, the project's now just finished, just got its occupancy permit, and, uh, and it's a nice development. And as, I, as you said, uh, a guy who actually monitored developments for all the other uh, developers in the lower mainland, he's the guy, and, and his building in Vancouver he and his wife just bought yesterday uh, the Heritage House, and uh, it is gratifying. And I'm going to tell everybody I know that a builder bought my house, yeah. so that must be a testament to its quality. Uh, yeah, that's well, congratulations. Thank it must you. be. I mean, <laughs> it's really great. Um, maybe moving to to uh, maybe a question about the Vancouver market uh, and then to some solutions because I know you're you're an ideas guy. Uh, you got a lot of ideas about how we can uh, we can provide some new solutions to to the housing woes of Vancouverites. But do you think the housing market here is broken? First of all, as a first question, in some respects, I think it is broken because for one reason, land prices got out of line. And so although now I think there's a new attitude towards densification, we're talking about allowing small apartments to be built in single-family neighborhoods, and some people are alarmed by that, but we, we did that in the past. It's a good idea. But when you think about it, that 50-foot lot, even if you can't put a 10-suite apartment building on it, it's probably worth one and a half, two million, million, depending where it's located, or a million dollars. But even if you put 10 suites, that's still $100,000 per unit for a studio or one-bedroom apartment. Right. Our construction costs in Vancouver are higher than they are anywhere else in Canada, including Toronto. You know, it's probably going to cost $350, $400 a foot just to build. Then you're going to have the fees and the municipal charges. The point being that when you add up all those numbers, even if I can get approval to put 10 suites on a single-family lot, I can't rent those suites for $800 a month. I can't even rent those suites for $1,000 a month. It's probably going to be $1,500, dollars $1,500 a month because of the cost of construction, land, the fees that people charge, the municipal expectations, and so forth. So to that extent, I think it is broken. One of the good things I see happening, though, is more emphasis on public transit, more emphasis on car sharing, although I was very sorry to see car-to-go fold because I think yeah, it's really important when people think about the cost of housing to also think about the cost of transportation. The two go together. And anybody right now who's listening to us who's hoping to buy a house soon, if they've got two cars, they got to get rid of one. And if they've got one car, they should think about getting rid of it too. Mm -hmm. Because if you sit down with a pencil and a piece of paper and you take a look at a $50,000 car and think, what's that car worth in 10 years? And then compare that with taking that same $50,000 and putting into real estate and say, what is that worth in 10 years? You would never buy a $50,000 car. 
That's a great way to frame it. Yeah. It's it's something intuitively, or we would probably say, but uh, thinking about it in those terms is actually really, yeah. really It's a useful. very entry-level car in this city, too. <laughs> yeah. I should say. <laughs> I from say, what I'm seeing, not, 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 not from my, my experience. <laughs> um, so, so moving forward to solutions, um, where, so I know... Like I said, you have ideas. All right. uh, can you talk about some of them? All right. Well, that, this over the weekend, I got a phone call from a young lady in Montreal. She's moving to Vancouver and she's looking for a place to rent. And uh, she's discovered all the scams that are online that your listeners know all about and you know all about. And it's she's finding it very very difficult. Also, compared to Montreal, the prices here are so high. She said, "I'd like to try and find a room in a house." somewhere along the candle line. Can you help me? The reason she wrote to me or called me is because she'd read an article I'd written in The Courier last year pointing out that there's hundreds of thousands of empty bedrooms in Metro Vancouver and there are literally thousands of people looking for accommodation. If only we could figure out a way of matching these people together. And so there's a whole area, I think, of opportunity. And many people are going to say, oh, no, I don't want to share. But a lot of people are willing to share, especially if you could know that your initial relationship doesn't have to be for a year or two years. Like maybe you could sort of go on probation in your relationship like you do when you join a company to take on a new job. So we would actually need to change the Residential Tenancy Act in terms to accommodate room sharing. That's right. And be a bit more lenient. Is, is, that, the big, is that the big hurdle, do you think? Like this idea that, that people are fearful of taking on a short-term or a tenant well, someone in, a bedroom. in your house, yeah. right? Yeah. Somebody that there's, there's often, you know, partition walls in the bedroom, but not in the main living space. So if it goes wrong, it has the potential to go very wrong. Yeah, right. right. So we need to, I think you're absolutely right. We need to think, is there a way of modifying the landlord-tenancy relationships if somebody wants to move into not a self-contained suite, but into a shared living arrangement? I mean, it's happening all the time right now. Yeah. There's a lot of houses in Shaughnessy that I know are being shared by five or six people, and somebody moves in, and if after a month everybody thinks they're awful and they don't keep their portion of the kitchen clean... You, you get rid of them. They don't have a formal landlord-tenancy relationship where they have to go to the rentalsman or the, mm-hmm. today's equivalent of the rentalsman and so forth. So all I'm suggesting is we should modify the regulations so that we could maybe make it easier for somebody to, to at least take a chance on someone. The other thing is through the Internet, with algorithms, just as there's ways now to rent on Airbnb or VRBO – there's ways to begin to filter uh, people to figure out who might be a good fit and so mm-hmm. forth. But my point is, you know, we often joke about, not joke, I'm often told, oh, we're running out of land in Metro Vancouver. We're not running out of land. We're just not making the best use of the land we've already got. And I think the same applies to accommodation. Not only are there a lot of empty bedrooms, I know, and this is a a touchy subject, there's a lot of government-subsidized housing that was built years ago, including the South Shore of False Creek, where a family grew up in a co-op unit, and the children have moved away, the husband has died, and the wife is still in that two- or three-bedroom unit on her own. square feet, yeah. On her own, maybe 1,200 square feet. But the point is... 
when you say, well, she should move, the point is, no, there are no one-bedroom units in this development for her to move to. And my response would be, then let's take two or three of those single ladies and say, if you want to stay in this development, which has been subsidized and continues to be subsidized, the three of you should move in together. Mm-hmm. It, just in going back to this idea of of kind of uh, house sharing or room sharing in 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 larger units is so re- the residential tenancy act strikes me as one of the ways that it's it disincentivizes people right because there's risk of ending up with people that you being stuck. don't don't like and don't and want to get rid of but is there like is your idea is there other ways to incentivize this uh, well, or do you think it would just take off if the residential tenancy act was different or I don't actually think the residential tenancy act is the impediment because the fact is you could have a letter of agreement you know if you want to move into a bedroom in my house I'm not going to sign a lease with you we'll have a letter and understanding sure. it's $800 a month and this is what I'd like you to do and you agree that once a week you'll cut the grass in the summer and so forth and in return you can have that room and and if it doesn't work out we'll we'll, we'll split up no i mean there's a, people who tend to think the worst can think of all sorts of terrible things that are likely going to happen having a young man like you living in the house with an older lady in Carisdale. <laughs> but i actually could think of all the wonderful things that will happen and at the end of my column as well. <laughs> in the courier i've invited i've invited readers to share their home sharing experiences both good and bad because i know for a fact there's lots of very positive experiences happening right now right mrs robinson is i think her name <laughs> there you go <laughs> I, um i i was actually just thinking like i mean I'm, I'm thinking about past guests that we've had that are quite entrepreneurial and a lot of them when they were younger they would do they would get a house close to the university and then they would sublet rooms to people and then they would collect the rent and keep the the profits for themselves but we actually had somebody on recently who was talking about there's in the in the u.s there is um, a guy who's got a new model for kind of um, doing airbnb where he's speaking to landlords He's taking on the head lease. He's subletting it on Airbnb and sharing in the profits with the landlords. So he gets, you know, potentially a couple hundred Airbnbs up and running, and he's splitting the profit with the various landlords that own the property. He has very little risk. I'm wondering if like a model like that for a young person that that wants to go get a house in Shaughnessy and speak to the landlord about just even sharing in the profit. Yeah. Of, of subletting some of the rooms, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of ways that young people could be creative about There's also just singing, there's a house I know by the Joyce Skytrain station right now that is divided into many rooms and the tenant, there's a head tenant who rents yep. house for over market, like six grand or something like sure. that. And she has students uh, from all over the world that she feeds, but apparently she's clearing over 10 grand yep. a month herself. Um, so it's kind of speaks to that. Like it's happening right now, but not in the, at the kind of level that yeah. the Airbnb would work. To, uh, model that you just described was happening extensively in Vancouver and may still be. So, in other words, there are investors who own the units, but they're not running the Airbnb. Right. There's a a, sure. an, a a broker, if you like, an entrepreneurial person who's basically doing exactly as you say. I uh, I I'm, had to go to Toronto last last year and uh, rented decided to experience 
living in a Toronto condo by renting in an Airbnb rather than staying in a hotel. And it was f- absolutely fascinating. Of course, I had to tell the uh, concierge that I was his cousin and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So <laughs> there was an, it was an illicit uh, relationship. Right. But the point was, that ter- I turned out that, that the guy that I was dealing with didn't actually own the unit either. He was managing it for somebody who owned a number of units. And uh, this is happening all the time sharing accommodation i think there's tremendous potential for more sharing because it is a much more cost effective way at sfu university we developed an apartment building uh, for rental one of my board members said you know are you sure there's a market for one bedroom units here well i said i think so but just in case let's design them like the one bedroom i lived in in ottawa which had a door to the living room Because as soon as you put a door to the living room, the living room could become a bedroom at night. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think about it, and again, Edward de Bono would say this, why is it that we only use our housing half the time? The other half of the time, it's sitting empty. So if you go to Russia, I've been working in Russia. In Russia, generally speaking, all of the rooms are bedrooms. In the day, it's a living room. At night, it's a bedroom. By putting a door on a bedroom... You can, in the, at night, it's a bedroom. In the daytime, you fold up the bed, and it becomes the living room. Really goes against open concept. <laughs> it does go against open concept. Yeah. You're absolutely right. but, but I think we're shifting almost away from open concept in a lot of ways, too. At least a lot of the design magazines, there's a, there's a bit of a movement back to walls and doors. And maybe this is part of it. Uh, I'm writing now for West Coast Homes and Design, which is published every two months by Vancouver Sun. And next, my, this month's issue, which will come out in February, is about kitchens. But in two weeks, it's about interior design. And I actually was going to talk about exactly what you said, that open plan living is fine for some people, but it certainly isn't fine for people who've got young kids screaming or where the husband or the wife or different people want to be able to have some peace and quiet. Or multi-generational families as well, right? Like that's where we see it a lot where people are building walls in in, in single-family homes is yeah. when the grandparents are living in the home where the, you know, the family and then lots of kids and maybe grandkids and... And you need walls. You need doors. After the show, I want you to Google pressure walls. Pressure walls. Pressure walls, I heard this term for the first time in New York, where accommodation has always been traditionally expensive, where just as you have these movable partitions in office buildings, they set them up in apartments. So that you take that living room, and not only do you put a door to the living room, you put a pressure wall down the middle, and as long as each half has some natural light, you can now have two people sleeping in that living room at night. And all over New York, people are installing these temporary partitions, which help divide accommodation into more affordable modules. And, they're, and the idea is they're just more soundproof than, than a typical divider at an office. Right. That's right. And you're not going to go in and start putting up steel studs and drywall and painting it and so forth. So you put up these pressure walls. And I I can imagine that some people listening right now are thinking... um, Should I leave Vancouver? (laughs) This sounds terrible. (laughs) This sounds terrible, right? Like if if you've, uh, you know, because honestly, like I think, okay, I have a two-bedroom 
house in East Vancouver. I live there with my wife and my daughter. We have kind of a third, we have a suite that's rented out, but we have a third kind of space that I guess I could probably have. But I know if I said like, hey, you know, what about an extra 800 bucks a month? My wife would like come at me with a knife. That would be, she would not be interested, right? Uh, Likewise, I Uh, think- Hang on a second. Is that wrong? (laughs) I don't know. How old is the child? Eight. Okay. But if that person was a au pair- Moving right. from Europe, who's going to pay a modest rent, right. who's very uh, accommodating, will look after your daughter when you two want to go out or when she's at work or take the, your daughter yeah. to school and pick her up as part of the accommodation. All of a sudden, instead of it being such a negative, as long as you don't pick the third person, right. she gets to pick that person, yeah. it may well work. Okay, okay, so you, you'd go with the, with the older lady. Yeah, you might. You, <laughs> Miss Robinson's not moving downstairs. No, but a, sw- a young lady from Sweden who's studying architecture and wants to live in Canada for a year and experience North American life yeah. may be just perfect. Right, yes. right. But okay, so, so bracketing that, though, uh, I think some other people listening that um, are struggling with rents in Vancouver, struggling to get into the real estate market, Uh, and are actually like, you know, early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, uh, potentially are listening, going like, I don't want to live like a student the rest of my life. Uh, Is this... Is this just the new reality or is the culture sh- – it sounds like the culture is shifting and it is just a new reality. But what would you say to people that are like, I just don't want that. You know, I'm too old for that. I would say they should seriously think about moving away from Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And indeed – I know that the jobs are here, and people think there are no jobs in Castlegar or Merritt or Trail or Prince Rupert. There are jobs there, and there are also wonderful ways of life up there as well, or mm-hmm. out there. And indeed, whenever I hear a young couple saying to me, you know, I say, are you going to have kids? And since I'm not an employer, I can ask them that question. They say, you know, we don't want to have kids until we have suitable accommodation. And that to me... Having had kids and deciding it was a good thing, I would say to people, you're better off moving away from Vancouver where you can afford accommodation, where you can have a different way of life. And uh, it's amazing. A number of years ago, I did a bit of work in trail. I mean, all I knew about trail was the trail smoke eaters. That's the name. (laughs) And they call the hockey team the smoke eaters because there's a lot of smoke. Well, there was a lot of smoke. But Trail is an incredible community, and I spent a week in there, and I wrote a column about it, suggesting that there are lots of places like Trail throughout British Columbia, throughout Canada, where you can have a very enjoyable life, where you're not paying 50 or 60 or 70% of your income on accommodation. Right. And I don't think there's anything wrong with deciding to move to Vancouver Island, up to, you know, Duncan or somewhere else, where... You know, you don't immediately say uh, talk about a million-dollar house or $600,000 apartment. For $600,000 in a lot of these places, you can buy one of the nicest houses in town. The other thing I see is what happened in London. Uh, I was in London on a stopover from Moscow a couple years ago and uh, went to the pub, and it was busy. Thursday night, the place was hopping, and I said to a young lady, is this place always like this? Yes, she said, generally, but especially on Thursday. I said, why not Friday? She said, people go home on Friday. I said, what do you mean? Well, she said, most of the people that I work with and most of the people around here, they don't live in London. 
They live two hours, three hours away from London, but they come in Monday morning, they share a suite or room or house, apartment with other co-workers often, and then on Friday afternoon, they go back to their home. And I wrote about this, and somebody said, it's not just London, it's happening here. I said, what do you mean? They said, there's lots of people commuting from Nanaimo, mm-hmm. coming in from other parts of British Columbia. So there's another pattern of living that is, as Vancouver becomes continually more expensive and takes on a different personality, and I'm willing to bet that even you are saying, you know, this place is starting to change. I mean, you're two young guys, but you're going to, it's starting to change. And at a certain point, I think it does make sense. Given what you do, you probably could do it anywhere. Mm. You know, it's interesting. I actually, I, I kind of want to, I, I, that's, that's very interesting. You see that in a lot of metropolitan areas where people are kind of commuting in for work and then leaving for the weekends. And we used to have a lot of clients that would own, you know, bachelor units or one bedroom condos and they'd have their prime principal residence and then they'd come in and they'd have a place in the city that where they would sleep maybe if they were working late at night and that sort of thing. And a lot of that has been done away with now with the empty homestead. That's right. And that was exactly one of the reasons why I oppose the empty home tax. And if Kennedy Stewart is listening or any other people who think the empty homes tax is such a great boon, I want you to know that I could give you a list of a number of people who have sold their condos and they're now renting. In other words, they're now using up the rental stock because if they live in Kamloops, if they keep a rental apartment here, it doesn't matter if they're only in two or three days a month. You know what? And actually, we've had clients who've done that sure. as well. So, yeah. I, I just want to highlight one other thing. I think that's such a good idea about the uh, – I think your example was like the au pair. That, that, but if, if, if you were a tenant looking for, say, a basement suite in East Vancouver – and you offered some kind of services to negotiate rent, I think a lot of families would probably, with the amount that people work in the city of Vancouver, et cetera, would take you up on like a child rearing, you know, like a, a babysitting yeah. night. Or, Speaking or for like, a, yeah, says the guy asking, who had a baby six, for a six months ago. But no, but or, or like shoveling snow, you know, yeah. I mean, something where there's, or, you know, raking leaves, whatever it is. Um, but I think that's a really that's a that's a very strong point. Yeah. So and that's what a lot of this intergenerational living is all about because it, you think nothing of going to the drugstore to pick up a prescription for somebody, but for them it might actually be a little bit more of a production. But that person has a house and with three or four empty bedrooms. I mean, I got this idea also because I live on a street with thirty-seven houses. And there's probably at least 100 empty bedrooms just on my street. Right. Now, unfortunately, we're not on a bus line. So, and I think that's really important. You need to be on transit because somebody who's paying $800 a month to rent a room isn't likely going to own a car. If they do, they've got to rethink things. But uh, it, it is, it, again, it's not for everybody. But I have friends, fancy West Side people who over the years have taken in students just because they, they enjoyed the relationships. They may have done it when they were young, went and lived in England or lived in Europe. And uh, again, 
it's really important not to assume that just because you wouldn't want to do something, mm. it doesn't mean others don't want to do it. Right. And I think at different stages of life as well, right? Like the, the kind of social component of that uh, for some people is sounds like, you know, depending on where you're at is a, is a real benefit. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe shifting gears. Yeah, a bit. I want to talk about assessments a little bit. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. the BC assessments came yes. out. Um, we just recently. had Andre Pavlov. We just had Andre Pavlov, yes. who actually that was Vancouver Real Estate Live, not the podcast, because he was saying uh, he had a, an idea about how the the taxes and the assessed uh, values should be related, and it was different than they are currently. Sounds like you have some ideas on that yes. as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your your ideas on how BC assessment should uh, make some changes, yeah. or at least the taxation policy? Well, first of all, I hope all of your listeners who are interested in what houses or apartments are worth are aware that anybody in British Columbia can easily look up at no cost the value of every piece of property in British Columbia. You just go to bcassessment.ca and you plug in the address and you'll get its valuation. And then if you sign up, then, again, for no cost, not only do you get that information, but you can start to get additional information, including what was the average increase or decrease in the overall municipality last year, and what is the overall increase or decrease for that particular property? And that begins to give you some information. I never took much interest in property assessments because for a long time, they generally bore absolutely no relationship to the value of a piece of property. But in recent years, certainly in British Columbia, I think the assessments, m many instances, are becoming more and more accurate as algorithms and other forms of applying sales information can, can be inputted into the, uh, the data. But my point, a number of years ago, I owned a single-family house in the Southlands area of Vancouver and an apartment in the Bayshore development that I had managed, and they were both assessed, make it up, two and a half million dollars, and so the taxes were the same. But I thought, you know, this is wrong because that apartment is very sustainable. It, it doesn't, first of all, it doesn't even have garbage collection. We pay for the garbage collection. Um, you didn't have to build a lot of roads or sewers to service it, <clears throat> excuse me, compared to my house, which was literally at the end of the line. And uh, I started thinking, we need to distinguish between how we value and determine taxes for a single-family property compared to a multifamily, especially when we're trying to encourage people to move into more sustainable multifamily properties. Right. So my first suggestion, and I shared this yesterday with a former liberal cabinet minister who I was talking about things that could be done, is to say, let's separate residential into multifamily and single-family. Recognizing that maybe people who choose to live in a single-family home should maybe pay a little bit more. Then the next thing is, all right, let's talk about commercial assessments. Because, again, most of us don't care about commercial assessments. We don't own commercial buildings. 
But what we have noticed is many of the businesses, the dry cleaner or the little cafe that we love to frequent has moved away or closed down. Mm -hmm. And they're closing down because of the way we assess property taxes. We don't base them on the value of that dry cleaning shop and how much money the owner or the operator earns every month. It's based on the fact that that site is zoned for a 24-story apartment building with two levels of retail at grade. We need to change the assessment system so that we recognize what is the current use as well as what is the future use so that it's more equitable. And I think you highlighted this, but just to be clear for listeners, that 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 the latent value in land that ends up in the taxation then is passed on to the tenant, not the landlord. That's right. right? I mean, just imagine right now when you rent an apartment – You pay $1,400 a month. You then pay your cable probably on top, and you pay your electricity on top. You probably don't pay gas on top, although in time people will be paying their own gas mills as it becomes easier to meter. But when you're renting a shop, you're paying all of those things, plus you're also paying the property taxes. Indeed, Mm. you may even be paying for the janitorial services. Building assessments. They call it triple net lease. In other Mm -hmm, words, mm -hmm. it's net of the taxes, net of the operating expenses, net of maintenance, and so forth. And and so in some instances, that because a property is zoned for future development, and given what has been historically the price of accommodation, the taxes may be as high as uh, the, the taxes may be as high as the rent. Right. Now, interestingly, for residential properties, if somebody is living in an area that's being rezoned or designated for higher density and their value goes up, and if you're, you know, for example, if you were living along Canby Street, all of a sudden that two and a half or three million dollar bungalow is worth eight million dollars. And when it's rezoned, it may be worth $10 million. There's actually a provision in the act that says you can apply if you've owned that property for 10 years or more and plan to stay there for an exclusion under something called Section 19.8. Write this down if you're in this situation. Not a lot of people know about this. I can save you (laughs) $5,000 a year and probably or more in your property taxes. But the point being, you can apply for to be assessed at the lower value, even though one day. Now, some people have said to me, you know, that's not fair. And they're right. It isn't fair. All of a sudden, you're Two and a half million dollar home is worth eight million. Why shouldn't you pay more taxes? And if you're older, you can defer them. But the reason why I think it is important is because over the years I've tried to rezone a lot of properties. And very often the opposition to the rezoning was no, because if this is designated for apartments, our taxes will go up. Mm -hmm. So if you can say to the neighborhood, no, your taxes won't go up because you can make application under this section of the Act, it might make it easier to rezone property so that a more appropriate, higher and better use can be put in place. So do you think, and I'm just curious about this, but it sounds like, because I think Andre Pavlov's point was, we should be taxed based on the services that we use. 
I agree Full with stop. that. Right? Yeah. So, so I think his idea was, or the examples he used, square footage, twenty five hundred square foot house in southeast Vancouver, or a twenty five hundred square foot house on Point Grey Road, regardless of you know the different valuations. They're both using the same services, presumably. Therefore, they should be taxed the same. But in your case, it sounds like there's there's a um, a kind of component to push people towards the type of housing that's going to. It's more incentivized towards multifamily living. Well, it wouldn't be the first time that governments yeah. use sa- taxes <laughs> to, to ins- promote oh, I actually policy like, objectives. I, li- I like this right. idea, yeah. I, I think I will take one aspect of what Andre said, and he has a, a colleague at SFU, and he's a smart, a smart guy. Most definitely, yeah. Um, and in fact, we both bought apartments, one above the other in a building in, uh, at university, and we both waited a long time to see it actually increase in value, but eventually it did. But I, I was in uh, Vietnam, and uh, driving through the countryside was shocked to see a lot of really skinny five-story buildings. And I asked my guide, like, why do they build such tall buildings and such skinny buildings, he said, because your taxes are based on the frontage of your property. So again, it's a little bit like Andre's thinking, well, if the taxes relate to the amount of roads or the amount of sidewalk or the pipes to serve, then it makes sense. The only other side of that, though, is if you look at your property tax bill, and I actually encourage people, look at your property tax bill very, very closely. You'll be shocked at some of the things you're paying taxes for. You're actually paying one line item towards BC assessment for the assessment. Even you didn't know that. You're paying for transit. You're paying for a whole pile of other things. So, And of course, school taxes is a major component right and uh, and so you you have to recognize it's not just the roads and the pipes and the sidewalk there are other components as well mm-hmm. i was just thinking it's there's so much to unpack here yeah. um i just one more question about the assessed value i can imagine and this is sounds like i'm just thinking about the and this is mainly because i spend too much time on twitter the number of people that would be upset with people being able to apply uh for a lower taxation even though their properties are going through the roof right i can imagine there's a there's a a large cohort of people that would be furious if they if they knew about a that that's even allowed but b uh an argument our argument uh, exists that it would be unjust right i think that's in the residential uh, arena but in the commercial no the commercial i think i think everybody would largely agree Uh, most people want those the ma and pa shops the coffee cafes and stuff people want those to stay right i mean the general public you would think so the city of Vancouver is looking at this, and you will see the term legacy businesses. In other words, businesses that perhaps have been in place for a number of years, just like the uh, principal home owner who's been in place for a number of years. Again, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. All I do know is that we should change the BC assessment system from the way it's operated up until now because the world is changing mm-hmm. and we're trying to do different we're trying to do different things. Yeah, fair enough. No, that's a that's a but, great point. And by the way, uh, one of the uh, things that people should be aware of is you can defer your property taxes. Not just me because I'm over 55. But even young families with children, if they cannot afford their taxes, 
can defer their taxes as well. Mm-hmm. And I've actually spoken up about this. It came out a number of years ago when assessments were shooting up and people assumed their taxes would shoot up. And I did tweet out mischievously, if you can't afford to pay your taxes, why don't you let Christy Clark pay them for you? And I put a link to the BC Government Deferred Tax Program. And a lady from CBC called me up, and uh, Tina Lovegreen, and said, I don't know about this. Tell me more. So I explained it to her, and at the end she said to me, do you defer your taxes? And I said, I do. I've deferred them for the last six years because the interest rate at that time was 0.7 of 1%, and it wasn't even compounded. And even though I could afford to pay my taxes, I could invest, you know, that $10,000 a year even my broker could do better than 07 to 1% <laughs> after taxes. Yeah. But I raise this point because I think some of these programs are worthwhile, mm-hmm. but they shouldn't necessarily be universal. Just like I don't think the homeowner grant program should be as universal as it is. And again, right now, they just adjusted the limit. It's down yeah. from 1.6 to 1.525. But it's $1.525 million for the entire province. If you live in Castlegar, that may be the nicest house in town. <laughs> yeah. Why are we giving that person a break on their taxes? Right. All I'm suggesting is if you want, I don't know if we should continue the homeowner grant program, but I don't want everybody damaging my car when I leave the studio here. But the point being... <laughs> we should at least fine-tune it a little bit so that it relates to the region and the average price of housing in that region. Everyone's looking for a Jag parked out front. <laughs> um, Matt, we, we do only have a couple minutes left here, uh, so and I know you want to unpack some things, but we also have to fit in the five wire, of oh, course. Oh, right, yeah, of course. Um, five quick questions about a little bit about Vancouver, but also about your lived experience, Michael. Do you have time for sure. that? Sure. All right, so question number one is, what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? Kitsilano. Good answer. Favorite bar or restaurant? Minerva's. <laughs> Minerva's. Minerva's is an old Greek-Italian right. restaurant in Carisdale that's yeah. been operating for uh, probably 30 years. And it's, uh, in Yiddish, we say, it's a family place. And you go in there, and it's friendly, and people know each other, and the servers aren't all in black and high heels. They've been there for a long time. (laughs) But it's incredibly good food. And I think the point is, that happens to be one that I go to. But I think most of us have places. Maria's is another one in Kitsilano. I think we all need places. But but one thing, I, I shouldn't go on, but... I do worry about the noise level in restaurants because I think more and more people are not going to restaurants now because especially when you get older, the noise levels are too high to have a decent conversation. Right. Turn down the music. You heard it here first. <laughs> no, it's true though. I, Two I, down, I, three to go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try what, and be briefer. What is, what is one book that you would recommend to anyone listening? Uh, Lateral Thinking, The Use of Lateral Thinking by Edward de Bono. It's one of about 54 books he's written. Uh, The other one is uh, Six Thinking Hats, also by de Bono. I think creative, lateral thinking, everybody can benefit from having an appreciation of that. De Bono. Great. Uh, Next question for you, Michael. 
What is one piece of advice you would give yourself today to your 18-year-old self? I kind of butchered that one, but it was, you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was the advice that I gave everybody else, which was to buy a home as soon as you can. And if you can't afford it on your own, maybe buy it with a friend to share. Um, don't be afraid to ask an uncle or someone to lend you some money and say, I'll tell you what, in return for you lending me the money for the down payment, I will share the appreciation. It's called a SAM, Shared Appreciation Mortgage. So it's not a gift. It's a registered mortgage. But I do think that overall, it's a good idea, if you can, to buy. Because when I look back, uh, I put it off for a long time. We made fun of our friends who bought real estate when they were in their 20s. And the other advice, I think, would be to start saving, RRSPs, things like that. Mm -hmm. Again, it's hard to believe that one day you'll be 65 or 70. But if you do some statistics and look at the difference between starting to invest when you're 25 to 40 rather than from when you're 40 to 55, you say, I really wish I'd started sooner. Yeah. <laughs> Great advice. Great and, advice. And the last question is, what is something that you've purchased recently for under $1,000 that's had a major impact on your life? Positive or negative, I guess. Yeah. Hopefully and, positive. Yeah. Um, some blood uh, pressure pills, I think. <laughs> <laughs> is that when you're thinking about property taxes? <laughs> yeah. Those come in handy. <laughs> uh, no, no I, I have been buying, I mean, some of the technological gadgets. I just bought a, a device that is going to allow me to transfer all the video, all the yeah. videos that I've taken over the last 40 years to digitize them. Oh, and nice. uh, and so I think there, you know, we all we all have these memories. We have books. Many of us have books full of photographs. Right. Uh, we got to start digitizing this because as we move right. into smaller places, we don't have all that room. But I, I think having memories and, 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 and things like that. Yeah. The other thing I tell everybody I know is use voice recognition software. If you don't have Dragon on your computer, it's crazy. I finally got voice recognition software on my phone so I can dictate all my emails and everything. Right. And it's just such a... Is, and it's so good now. It's almost 100%. So is that how you're writing your columns? I write... I, I often do the first draft. I just sit back and dictate it, and then I clean it up a bit. You know, the other person I, <laughs> I heard that uh, that wrote like that, and I guess there's a lot of people that probably do but christopher hitchens i think would just he could just he could and it would, he'd bang out a an article yeah. like just right off the top of his head and you know fully and, formed but but for i mean for correspondence and for work i mean i go to meetings i don't type in meetings because people think you're sending uh tweets out or something <laughs> so i write down notes just like you are yeah. but at the end of the meeting i go back and pour myself a drink and then dictate notes and people and by the way i do encourage people i got this from working for government but it, you should document these things but it's easy with voice recognition software you just right. dictate great. it clean it up a bit send out the notes and you'll never regret the fact that uh, you have all those records you can do your diary that way i actually encourage people to keep a diary because 20 years from now it's really interesting to look back and see what was i thinking when i was 35 yeah, yeah. 
might be scary. <laughs> well, on that note, thanks. Well, it's going to be good too when you can download all those memories back onto your your brain too. <laughs> Thirty yeah. years. That's a real possibility. But uh, thanks for your time. That, Michael. W- that was yeah, fascinating as always. And uh, yeah, thanks again. I hope you can edit this into something that's a little more coherent than I was. Here, Michael, actually, we should say, though, how can people find out more about what you're doing? And uh, okay. yeah, I, I do keep a blog. Uh, it's, I think it's called Michael Geller's blog, but it's gellersworldtravel.blogspot.com. Right. Right. And I do post all my columns on it and every once in a while other bits of information and uh i love that blog we've been reading well, that for years and well yeah fans of it for a long time and, and and if you're not following you on twitter i should say you're <laughs> you're fun to follow yeah you're a guy that everyone should be following so thank you very much i enjoyed the chat okay So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Michael Geller. Always uh, an interesting Renaissance man, Michael Geller. I, I don't know. Too many hats. Yeah, he's, he does a I lot mean of that things. that as a compliment. Well, everybody knows who Michael Geller is, so we, we really appreciate having him on the show. And so many takeaways from that, Matt. I think uh, we'll just leave it there. It was a long interview. Fantastic. What do we got before we cut for today? What do we got? Well, we should say YouTube Live, our live events, Vancouver Real Estate Live. The yes. next one is March 19th. A couple wait. weeks out. Really excited about that. Yeah, You're just getting better. We're going to announce more about the show in coming weeks, but but make sure you put that in your calendar. You can also head 7 over to... PM. 7 well, p.m. Yeah, you can head over to our, our, our YouTube channel, and I think you just ring a bell or set a reminder, yeah. and it'll actually notify you before the show. Yeah, you won't miss any of our live events. Yeah, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. What else do we have other than that? we got a bunch of listings right now. Yes. And we, we are... And we got a bunch more coming. Of course, we are realtors and we would be happy to list your property. Or even provide just a market analysis. Yeah. If you are interested in listing, we are ramping up for the spring market. It is a great time to be selling. Inventory is so low. Inventory is so low. The stats just went out uh, on the live wire. The stats went out yesterday. And uh, I'm telling you, it's uh, the, the inventory is low and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. So it's a good time to be thinking of selling if you're selling this year. For sure. And get in touch. We're happy to have a chat with you about listing your property or what your real estate goals are always. And head over to our site, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's right. Head over there. We have the live wire. That's our weekly newsletter with deal of the month. We got the stats. We got all assignments, all sorts of information going out on that. We sure. also have private client services at Real Estate Research Tool. Yes, Matt. If you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information at your fingertips. It's free. It's available on our site. And it honestly is the best way to search for real estate in Vancouver. We've had how many people over the years? Hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands. Thousands? Of, thousands, for sure thousands, of people use this resource and no, it's for sure. The feedback, it is thousands. Yeah, it is and thousands. the feedback is always, this is the best thing. I'm so glad that uh, I got to use PCS. That's right. And there's no obligation, no cost at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. For if sure. If you want to talk about that, about the live events, about listing properties. Emilio Estevez. Michael Geller. Anything at all. Sure. Give me a call, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And we also got that secret line. Info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Stay bronze, secret. Stay bronze. <laughs> Have a good week, guys. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.
Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. 